Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin and how did they end? Let's find out on episode 66, Mopping Up. Previously on The Fan of History, the Sumerian horse nomads invaded from the Russian steppes. Their first victims were Urartu and Phrygia. This eased the pressure on Sargon II, king of Assyria, who will now try to reassert control of everything that his predecessor, Tiglath-Pileser III, was king of. So, Dan, how are things going this week? Well, first I'm looking at the Patreons. I have to talk about that first. We do have a Patreon for this podcast, and you can contribute any amount you want per episode, typically 2 or $1. And uh, we need to reach $30 to get past 71 BC. We're currently in 713 BC, so I think there is about five episodes, including this one, before we reach that point. We have been above $30, but we are not right now. So if you like this podcast and want to hear the story about the Assyrian Empire and the Greeks and stuff for the whole 7th century BC, uh, please consider contributing on our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash fanohistory. And uh, I will thank the patrons that are there at the end of the episode. So now... Time to go to 713 BC. Uh, King of the week is, of course, Sargon II of Assyria. And we will look first to the northwest, into Anatolia, into the tiny kingdom of Tabal. King Ambaris of Tabal is married to Sargon's daughter, Nabulei. This is interesting. We talked about her before because she is one of the first named princesses of Assyria. 
And it, it looks like this King Ambaris is very important Sargon, as he, he probably has a hundred daughters, but this one is named and we know about her, so that probably makes her important. But in 713 BC, despite this marriage, King Ambaris rebels. And it is possible this happened earlier than 713 BC, and it just took time for Sargon to, uh, to handle it. Um, I, we don't know what Nabulie felt about her husband's rebellion. Nabulie is a person that we have letters from, usually to Sennacherib, to Sargon's son. But Nabulie, uh, we don't know what happened to her. But Sargon is not happy. And of course, he brings the royal Assyrian army to Tabal, and it kind of makes you wonder what was uh, Ambaris thinking. Or was it once again King Midas or the king of Urartu that made him do this? But of course, Sargon wins again. He takes Ambaris and the leading men prisoner and brings them to Assyria. And they're never heard of again. <laughs> the famous um, method of removal. <laughs> yes. And remember, in 714 BC, just last year... Urartu was silenced. It was uh, Sargon's grand adventure. So Urartu has very little influence in this area now. So Sargon takes this chance to fortify the Anatolian border. So he builds ramparts and fortifications at Bit Burutash and Kilaku. Trust me when I say that these are like good points to build fortifications in the northwest. <laughs> And he brings in people from other regions that he has conquered, probably from the east, and makes the whole area a province with an Assyrian governor. And this Assyrian governor he puts there has no name comes down to us, but he will do stuff. So remember the Assyrian governor uh, in Q, I think this is, could be another province. But uh, there is a very, very active Assyrian governor in the northwest soon in our story. I think it's this guy. Uh, there are, of course, kings left in Antolia that uh, are not conquered yet. And one of them is Kurti, the king of Atuna. And he shows up and pays tribute to Sargon. And this was a very shrewd political move because uh, Kurti was the next target of Sargon's campaign. And it seemed that he thought that Kurti was uh, considering treason. But Kurti managed to uh, calm down Sargon, give him gifts, uh, put up statues of Sargon in his home, and Sargon is pleased. Uh, I think King Midas was behind the rebellion of Tabal, because his next actions will uh, show this, I think. So he's uh, laying the seeds of internal strife, basically? Yes, but remember that no troops from King Midas' kingdom of Phrygia has ever been in combat with Assyrian troops. It's always someone else that fights for Midas, but never Midas or his own men. So it makes you wonder why anybody trusts Midas, but uh, it could be money involved, of course. Midas is, as you know, pretty rich. All right. Uh, the same year, 713 BC, Sargon has to look to the southwestern areas of the empire because he goes to Ashdod. Ashdod is uh, to the extreme southwest on the coast of uh, Palestine today. Uh, and it has remained outside the Assyrian orbit 
But King Asiro of Ashdod is accused by the Assyrians of conspiring against Assyria. And you don't know if he did or not, but some, something put the Assyrians onto this path. And of course, the little kingdom of Ashdod can do nothing when Sargon shows up. So he goes from the northwest to the southwest, or sends somebody else and then claims credit for it. <laughs> but King Asiru is deposed, and his brother, Akimetu, is appointed king of Ashdod by Sargon II. And this puts him in a vassalage position, so Ashdod is now a vassal state of Assyria, but it's still not conquered, it's just a vassal state. The year is not over yet when there are insurrections in the east as well, uh, in Karalla and Ilippi. Uh, Karalla was a region that was added to Lulumu in the east in 716 BC, and Assyrian officials were put in place, but the people are not happy with that, so they rebel, they expel the Assyrian of officials, and they put the brother of the former king. Uh, the former king was Asher Liu. Asher probably means that he very much sided with the Assyrians. <laughs> and they put his brother Amitashi on the throne. And the Assyrian army shows up here as well in the same year. So makes you really wonder if Sargon is personally involved or not. But of course, Sargon says that he was everywhere. Uh, <laughs> this rebellion is crushed. It wasn't even a real army, it was the people. And Kerala is organized as a province in the east, uh, under an Assyrian governor. But the king of Elippi, Dalta, we've talked about him many a time before, because he was loyal to Tiglath Pelleser III already. And he has remained loyal, but he has been driven out of his kingdom by all these rebels that don't like the Assyrians. But the Assyrian army arrives to Lippi as well for some good old-fashioned slaughter and plunder. <laughs> and they restore Dalta to the throne. Uh, and Lippi is this strange little kingdom in the east where it, it lies right next to the border of the ancient kingdom of Elam. But Elam doesn't interfere. And we know that the Elamites are the only ones that can stand up to Assyria with any success. They don't dare do anything about Sargon at this point. And when Sargon is in the east, every medium shows up. The Medes. They're like, oh no, is he back? Let's go pay tribute. <laughs> They're getting in line. <laughs> yeah, and the Medes appear extremely divided in 713 BC because there are 45 media rulers. That's the highest number we've ever heard uh, that show up to pay tribute to Sargon. Also, our old friends, Ulusunu, who was in Sargon's Grand Adventure, and Bel Aplaidina, another local king, they show up and they were already loyal to Sargon, but they pay tribute and they're like, oh, it's great to see you, Sargon. Please come every year. <laughs> and despite this, we know we saw a total victory in the East in 714 BC. And here's another total victory in the East for 713 BC, and still the East remains a source of trouble for the Assyrians. Okay, that was just one year. Wow. And now, yeah, <laughs> now we are moving into 712 BC. Do you think anybody will rebel against Sargon in 712 BC? I'm going to say yes. <laughs> oh, yes! Because they can't seem to stop doing it. 
No. In uh, the northwest, Melid and Gurgum rebels. And this is probably enticed by King Midas again. He's sitting there in Phrygia, fighting the Cimmerians, because they're invading Phrygia. Mm-hmm. But he's still causing trouble for Sargon. So who are the culprits here? It's Tar- Targusani of Melid. That Sargon himself placed on the throne of Melid. And it's Tarkulara of Gurgum. So Tarkusani of Melid and Tarkulara of Gurgum. And uh, this Tarkulara guy, he paid tribute to Tiglath Peleser III before. So we have heard about him before. So Sargon does what he always does. I can't stop thinking about why are these people rebelling against the Assyrian? The Assyrian joke must be enormous. Because they rebel, but they stand no chance. Because Sargon shows up with the royal Assyrian army. Right. And they can't they can't do anything. They're just crushed. That's what, I'm like, I, I, is this their only method of protest? Is basically to throw themselves on their own on the spears of the uh, royal army. Well, I bet it's not uh, a good course of action to like write letters of complaint to Sargon. Maybe that's what they did, and <laughs> that's what counts as a rebellion. Yeah, that, but, that's uh, the rebellion. They were just saying, "Hey, could you, you know, maybe relax the taxes a little bit? We're starving." <laughs> that's, uh, that doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, Tarkusani of Melid, he realizes that he stands no chance to flee to another city called Tilgarimu. But the inhabitants of Tilgarimu, when Tarkusani of Melid is inside the city and the Assyrians show up, they're like, uh-oh, we're not doing this. So they open the gates and <laughs> tell Sargon, he's over there. Get him. <laughs> we hate that guy. <laughs> and guess what happens to Tarkusani? He's never heard from again. Yes, exactly. He's hauled <laughs> off to Assyria and never heard of again. Uh, Gurgum is still in rebellion. So Gurgum is not completely crushed yet. And if Midas is behind this, it's like, why didn't he send some Phrygian troops? But we have no record of Assyrian soldiers actually fighting Phrygian troops. Uh, Sargon is distracted immediately by another rebellion in Ashdod, the kingdom that just rebelled last year in the southwest. Uh, so this new king that Sargon put in place, Akimetu, uh, people don't like him. So they take another guy. They don't have their old king because he's hauled off. <laughs> but they have Yamani, and they make Yamani the king of Ashdod. And Sargon shows up. And Yamani is like, uh-oh, this is not working. So he runs off to Egypt. Because Egypt is close. Mm-hmm. But the pharaoh of Egypt, and this is a question who this is at this point, we'll address later. But someone, the Assyrians record that someone with a lot of power, probably the pharaoh, but the Assyrians never used the word pharaoh, uh, but this pharaoh person puts Yaman in irons and sends him back as a present to Sargon II. Because remember, Sargon II has uh, trading relations with Egypt at this point. Right. And the Egyptians are probably very happy to keep Sargon out <laughs> from... They don't want Sargon to go into Egypt and try to find this guy. 
But Sargon is not done in uh, with the Philistine cities of the southwest, so he besieges and conquered three of them, Ashdod itself, but also Gath and Asdodimu, who probably said the wrong things. So they are besieged and conquered, their populations are transported away, and other people from the east are put in their place. Close to all this action is Judah, still a vassal kingdom of Assyria. Judah is still around, led by King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is on Team Assyria, so he dodges harm here. Uh, there appears to have been a deal struck between Yamani, the rebel king of Ashdod, and Judah, Edom, and Moab. Edom and Moab are tiny kingdoms close to Judah. And they were supposed to support him when the Assyrians show up, but they don't. <laughs> <They're> like, oh. <laughs> wow. But now, then, we, we again have the question, did Sargon II himself do all of this personally? He claims that he did. But the Epinom Chronicle, the, the chronicle that recorded one thing for every year, it says that Sargon stayed in the land this year, but he didn't go on any campaign. So maybe both of these campaigns, the, the campaign against Melid and Gurgum and the campaign against Ashdod were led by generals or military commanders, Turtanus probably. That's interesting. Why? I wonder why they would say that and not like extol the virtues of, you know, the reb rebellions that put down. But I guess they just talk about what he did, so... Yeah, probably. There's like anything any Assyrian does is attributed to Sargon if it's a good thing. Right. We, we have a mention of the campaign against Ashdod in the, in the Bible, in the book of Isaiah. And the book of Isaiah says that the Assyrian army was led by a Trutanu, they're a field marshal. There are two field marshals in Assyria at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Bible actually says that this was the case, that Sargon wasn't on location. Um, the passage in the book of Isaiah is the only mention of Sargon II in the Bible, which seems kind of strange as he has done so much. Mm -hmm. But uh, the Bible says that Shalmaneser IV uh, uh, crushed Israel. And uh, so this is the only mention of Sargon II. But Hezekiah is still a loyal vassal to Assyria and he pays his tribute. And he probably does this because Sargon II is way too strong. But what if Sargon died? What if Hezekiah could find some reliable, powerful ally? Mm. And he does. He does this in 712 BC or 703 BC. And I looked into this and I think 703 BC is the year that Hezekiah finds this powerful friend. Because Merodach Baladan, the king of Babylonia, he will appear in both the Book of Kings and Isaiah. And he seems to have struck an alliance with Hezekiah, but I think this happens in 703 BC. Sargon is way too... Uh, he doesn't care about it until 703 BC, so I think it happened in 703 BC. Or maybe they initiated relations in 712 BC, but things uh, came to a. Yeah, things grew in 703 BC. That makes sense. So let's save that for later. Um, that was the year 712 BC, so now we're moving into 711 BC. Uh, Gurgum, still in rebellion in the northwest. And this year, 
Sargon the Second crushes Gurgum. So they, they survived for a year as rebels. And I think King Midas told King Tarkular of Gurgum that uh, Sargon had forgotten about him. And uh, this year, as any other year, King Midas sends no help to Gurgum. The Royal Assyrian army shows up, attacks Gurgum. And we get two different stories hmm. about what happens. The first is the default story. Tarkulara is hauled off to Assyria. His kingdom is crushed. Uh, and he's never heard of from again. But there's another story that's more interesting because it isn't the same as any other story. And it's about uh, one of the sons of Tarkulara, Mutallu. When he sees this happening, Mutallu murders his dad. Probably trying to make himself seem like a loyal Assyrian vassal and to become the vassal king of Gurgum. But it doesn't work because Gurgum is made into province with the governor. Defenses are strengthened and all the defenses are looking towards Phrygia and King Midas. Uh, there is massive work in this area from the Assyrians. They make new towns only to hold the garrisons. And they put in Sutian bowmen in the area. Uh, and it looks like Sargon is building a base for a massive campaign into Phrygia. And to finally deal with King Midas. So I bet King Midas is quite worried in 711 BC. I would be. <laughs> yeah, probably. We have to mention Sennacherib. Because Sennacherib will be the focus of our story very soon. Remember the point we stopped this show? We can't get the $30 on... No, we stopped this subject. We can't get the $30 on Patreon. It's the destruction of Sennacherib in 701 BC. Sennacherib is the crown prince of Assyria, the son of Sargon. And he is super happy at this time. He is in charge of administration in the capital, Dur-Sharukin, the newly built capital. It isn't even finished yet. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And he's building the capital. And he's taking care of all the boring administrative stuff so Sargon can focus entirely 
on warfare, making both of them very happy at this point. Okay, we are moving into 710 BC, and here we have to point out that Merodach Baladan is still in power in Babylonia. He threw off the Assyrians so long ago, while the Assyrians were occupied by having a new king in 722 BC. And 10 years had passed since the Assyrian army last showed up in Babylonia and got defeated at Dur by the Elamites. Uh, Merdak Baladan, we talked a lot about him, but his main strength is that everybody loves him. He is a great diplomat and he has this alliance with Elam. Elamite kings have terrible names. <laughs> so his main ally is Shutur Nahunte, the king of Elam. But everybody loves Merdak Baladan. All the all the Sealand tribes, all the native population of Babylonia, all the small kingdoms next to Babylon, they just think Merodach Baladan is the thing. And he is. He's a great king. And he is starting to get a bit worried because Sargon hasn't attacked him yet. For ten years. <laughs> but that is about to change. It has been a great decade for Babylonia. Even the Arameans who used to run around in the countryside of Babylonia and plunder stuff. Right. Even they love Merodach Baladan. And the Assyrians spend a lot of time in their documents uh, writing bad things about Merodach Baladan. But even though they are the victors in this story, and they write history, even they can't hide the fact that Merodach Baladan is a great king of Babylon. Maybe the best king they've had for our entire story since 1000 BC. Uh, we have archaeological evidence and Babylonian sources that tell us that Merodach Baladan repaired and endowed the temples. He acknowledged tax exem exemption privileges for the citizens of the old sacred cities. It was a Babylonian tradition that people from these huge ancient cities, Babylon, Borsippa and Sippar, they were supposed to be tax exempt. And um, many kings have like tried to remove that privilege because they wanted more tax revenue. Sure. But Merodach Baladan gives them back their privileges, showing that his kingdom is working. Provincial administration functioning perfectly under Merodach Baladan. We have canals built, we have bridges, irrigation systems restored. Uh, they were destroyed by different wars, but now they are restored. And one of the major waterways that is still visible today, man, one of the man-made waterways near Uruk, still bears his name. Um, the legal and administrative documents of Babylonia, they show a significant rise in economic transactions during this period. And the economy looks to be the best it has been for 500 years in Babylon, like before the Bronze Age collapse. Amazing. We get a lot of cultural activity. People are writing stories, uh, doing art. We get a lot of scientific activity. Remember, the Babylonians are great scientists, astronomers and stuff. And this is happening during the reign of Merodach Baladan. Uh, we have traditions of a fantastic garden being built. Maybe the Hanging Gardens, but we'll talk more about the Hanging Gardens of Babylon mm. very soon. 
with another theory about them, but this is one theory. Uh, great astronomical records during the rain, so everything in the sky is noted. Uh, I just learned from uh, my other podcast, Fan of Astronomy, that uh, the Babylonians knew about how long it took uh, Jupiter to orbit the sun. They knew that it took oh, wow. 12 years for Jupiter to orbit the sun. So, uh, yeah, they didn't think the Earth was flat. <laughs> Uh, but Sargon, in all the sources, is lying through his teeth about Merodach Baladan. If you listen to Sargon, Merodach Baladan is a crazy tyrant, and people just live in fear of him, but it seems to be entirely untrue. And I will give Merodach Baladan the grade of 10 out of 10 as the king of Babylon. <laughs> I think he would have, if he was allowed to continue as the king of Babylon, it would have been great for Babylon. But uh, that's not what's going to happen. Unfortunately. Do you feel that uh, we remember the situation in Babylonia, the, all the peoples and stuff, or should I go through them again? Um, I think just a quick hit on who's there now. Okay, quick recap. Uh, Babylonia is dominated. The country is Babylonia, the city is Babylon. It's in the north, pretty close to Syria. The Sumerian native population is the ancient city dwellers, and they are like the, the real Babylonians. They are very closely related to the Assyrians. The Assyrians consider them their relatives. And whenever Assyria shows up, it's always the city dwellers that are kind of the most friendly to Assyria. And they are, of course, concentrated in the cities and the towns with tribal people living in the countryside. The major tribal people is, of course, the Chaldeans the Chaldeans that I uh, pronounce differently every time, but I think the correct English pronunciation is the Chaldeans, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm going with. <laughs> yeah, uh, I am not a native English speaker, so sometimes I use the Swedish pronunciations, and of course I should be using the Mesopotamian uh, pronunciations, right. <laughs> but that's really hard. Uh, the Chaldeans are three major tribes. They're concentrated in the sea land in the marshy regions of the south of Iraq today, in the south of Babylonia. And uh, Merodach Baladan is from one of these tribes. They are the classical enemies of Assyria. They always hate Assyria, and the Assyrians always hate them. We also have the Kassites, the old ruling barbarians of Babylonia. They are still around. They form their own kingdom, Namri, in the foothills of the Sagros Mountains to the east. But some of them are still in Babylonia. And they are also not very friendly to the Assyrians. We have the Arameans. They are still around. They have tribes like everywhere. Like if, if there's empty space, there are some Arameans there. And they have seen many of their kin conquered by the Assyrians. So they don't like the Assyrians either. To the east of Babylonia is Elam. And uh, they are always siding with the Chaldeans. They are always against Assyria. And in 710 BC, the reason I've talked so much about Merodach Balan and the situation in, in Babylonia is, of course, the fact that Sargon II now has control of all the other borders to the north, to the west, to the east. And all that remains is to reconquer Babylon. Tiglath Pileser III was the king of Babylon. And Sargon II intends to make himself the king of Babylon. So here he comes. The only city in Babylonia still under Assyrian control is there, 
That's where the battle was mm-hmm. in 720 BC. And based from there, Sargon attacks. He attacks the East Tigris region. He secures a hold over Gambulu, and Gambulu becomes a buffer zone between Assyria, Babylonia, and Elam, and it will remain a buffer zone for a very long time. Merdak Baladan, being a good king, has prepared for this attack for 10 years, and he has stayed, stationed a large number of Gubulian troops in a place called Dur Athkara. He has heightened the walls of Dur Athkara. He has predicted this attack. He has cut canals from the river Serapu to flood the plain to defend the city of Dur Athkara. So this is like the, the key piece of the defense plan of Merodach Balaban. Stop the Assyrians at Dur Akara and the rest of Babylonia will be safe. And Sargon predictably shows up and besieges Dur Athkara. So let's see if Merodach Balaban's plan works out. But despite the walls and the flooding, the Assyrians are just too good at siege warfare. So Sargon takes the city pretty much without breaking a sweat. So big discouragement wow. for for poor Merodach Baladan. Yeah, no kidding. He had it all figured out, and then Sargon showed up and crushed it. He, he takes the city, Durafkara, he renames it Durnabu, and makes the whole area of Gambulu into an Assyrian province with this uh, newly named city Durnabu as its capital. He encounters stubborn resistance in the marches of the river Uknu. And this also happened to Tiglath-Pelesar III. Uh, the Chaldeans like their marches and fight better in swamps. <laughs> uh, Gambolian and Aramean refugees hide out in the marches. So uh, Sargon is like, this is not working out. When we fight them in the marches, I can't use my tactics, which I won't tell anybody about. So we don't know the Assyrian battle tactics, as usual. Uh, it's not the same tactics he employed in uh, in his grand adventure. He doesn't charge into the march by himself. <laughs> he does something not. clever. Oh, sorry, you were saying? Oh, so I would hope not. He needs to <laughs> rule his country. <laughs> so the problem with the marches is that they are too wet for the Assyrian army. So Sargon gets... Probably not Sargon, probably someone in his army skilled in siege warfare or skilled in warfare makes this decision, but he decides to flood the marches. That sounds pretty weird, right? Yeah, seems counterintuitive. Yeah, he builds a dam at one of the tributaries of the Uknu River and flood the marches. So the marshes become a lake. Oh, okay. You can't hide in a lake. Nope. So... The guerrilla forces are forced out, and uh, Sargon conquers everything, removes the dam, and uh, the marches are now his. And they're added to the new province Gambulu. And this is right on the border of Elam, or at least on the edge of Elamite territory. So now the Elamites, they are allied to Merodach Balan, and they need to react. But Sargon takes proactive action here. He's like, okay, I know the Elamites will show up last time and there it didn't work out. So instead of going to Babylon, now that the border fortresses are down, he attacks Elam and sees their border fortresses. And Elam doesn't seem to be prepared for this war. 
Tresreas lose their border fortresses to Sargon. And Sargon takes these border fortresses that have stood there for for a long time. Mm-hmm. And make them Assyrian border fortresses. And secure the border against Elam with their own fortresses. So that contains Elam for this war. And another Assyrian army is coming down. So Sargon has split his forces into two and attacks uh, Babylon. While Sargon has now come so far to the south that he can enter Babylonia from the south. So suddenly there are two armies from Assyria, one in the north, one in the south, attacking Babylonia from both directions. Uh, So Sargon himself crosses the Tigris and the Euphrates and works his way up the Euphrates through territory occupied by Bit-Dakuri. This is one of the three big Chaldean tribes. And it's quite apparent that the target of both armies is the city of Babylon itself. This is kind of a vulnerability of Babylonia because the person in control of Babylon is kind of the king. Right. So now the city of Babylon is under attack or very soon it will be besieged. So Merodach Baladan uses his favorite battle tactic. He runs away! <laughs> but he was well prepared. It was not his plan to run away. He, yeah. he thought about this war for 10 years and then he just lost it in, in just one battle season. So the battle-hardened army of Sargon II was way too much for the Babylonians. Uh, Merodach Baladan takes all his wealth, which must be a lot, and flees Babylon at night, not telling anyone. Wow. Uh, Being the master of sneaking, Uh, (laughs) Merodach Baladan safely arrives in Elam. He just passes everybody. He sneaks past the Assyrian army, past (laughs) these new border fortresses. And appears at the court of King Shutur Nahunte, who has done nothing in this war. And uh, Merodach Baladan isn't very happy. He's like, uh, uh, weren't you supposed to do something? And Shutur Nahunte is, uh, I can offer you some refuge. <laughs> and Merodach Baladan is always the diplomat. He's like, thank you very much. But you see all this wealth I brought? I will give it all to you if you attack Sargon and the Assyrian army. And Shetuna Hunte goes, uh, thank you very much for this kind offer, but uh, there's so much else going on here in Elam, so don't really have the time. <laughs> but you, you're free to stay here as long as you want. And uh, Merodach Balan is very disappointed with his ally. And the Elamite army still does nothing. Wow. And this... And the city of Babylon doesn't resist them when they see that their king fled and two Assyrian armies are right outside the town of the city. They just give up. And some of the people in Babylon, of course, remembers the kingship of Tiglath-Pileser III. So they know that the Assyrians will not kill everyone in Babylon and that the, the city is in no real danger. But one day... The Assyrians might do just that. But this is not that day. Because Sargon is after the kingship of Babylon. And this is sort of his crowning achievement of this decade. He started in 722 BC with rebellion in Assyria and war on all fronts. In every direction there was a war of rebellion against him. But now, finally, he has won all these wars. He's the total victor. 
and he now has an empire as big as Tiglath Pileser III had. And the only threat that remains in Sargon's mind, at least, is King Midas in Phrygia. But Merodach Baladan is still alive, and we know he will be back. He's always he always comes back. <laughs> He's always planning. Yes, and there are problems in the south, in the sea land, because one of the Chaldean tribes will not submit to the new king of Babylon. It's the Bityakin, it's the tribe of Merodach Baladan. They are resisting, they are hiding in the sea land. Uh, the sea land marches are much bigger, you can't flood the sea land. Right. So, Sargon will have to go and clean this tribe out. But we will leave Sargon II here because our next episode will be a lot about how Sargon handles being the king of Babylon. Because this is a very sensitive question to any Assyrian king. Uh, we will see how he treats the conquered country. Will he do what the V did? Will he tear the place apart, leaving it in ruins? Uh, remember, the V left the entire country of Babylonia in ruins. Or will he do a TP3 and be a good king that the Babylonians like? But we will leave him there, clasping the hand of Marduk as the all-powerful king of all of Mesopotamia. All right. Wow. That's it for this episode. So, in our next episode, this will be, like Dan mentioned, the last decade of this uh, of the YouTube show. Yeah, we, we, we ended the YouTube show in 701 BC. It's now over, but this podcast could also, this podcast subject could also end there uh, with the, uh, yeah, we shouldn't spoil this much. No, <laughs> the destruction of Sennacherib in 701 BC. We have some epic, epic events in the years 709 to 701 BC. But I wanted to do uh, a thank you to the patrons. When you become a patron at patreon.com slash history, you get the choice if you want a reward or not. Um, the basic reward is this uh, shout-out. Uh, some people elected not to get the reward, so thank you to them without naming them. Then I want to thank Nicholas, Patricia, Frode, David... John, Kim, The Endless Knot, the podcast, great podcast, and Avery61. So thank you for supporting Fan of History. Yes, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. We would love some iTunes reviews. If you listen to this on an Apple device, please give us iTunes reviews. If you listen to this on any other platform, please give us reviews as well. But then you have to tell us because we won't detect them. <laughs> If you do right. iTunes reviews in the US or in Sweden, we will see them. Uh, so please do that. This is the place in the podcast where I would have read them if we got any. <laughs> exactly. Well, we will read them, good or bad. So also, please go to YouTube, like, subscribe, and share. Um, we It really does help us out. I know it seems small, but each one of those little things adds up over time. Facebook.com slash fan of history. As uh, Dan had mentioned, patreon.com slash fan of history. If you want to follow Dan, he's at Dan Horning on Twitter. And I'm at Cerulean Says Hi. So, 
for this week. I am Brennan. And I'm Dan. And this is the Fan of History. Go, Sargon, go! (laughs) If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.